excited about entering Zechariah with you. One of the reasons I chose to walk through Zechariah is that I wanted to preach through an Old Testament book and show you that the Old Testament is just as much the abiding Word of God as the New Testament is. Sometimes if, if pastors aren't careful, their patterns and, and the rhythms uh, can leave the church with the impression, maybe even unintended, that it's only that last third of your Bible that really matters. But we would do well to remember that the Old Testament is also our Christian Scripture. Jesus and the apostles hardly say very much at all before making connections to the Old Testament. God revealed Himself in those words before He revealed Himself in the incarnate Word. And the Old Testament makes sense of the person and work of Jesus and the nature of His kingdom and what kind of people we ought to be in light of God's faithfulness throughout history to judge and to save. We might also add that the Old Testament helps us understand our identity. It shapes our self-understanding. The Old Testament provides the backdrop that makes sense of where we come from, who we are, why things are the way they are, and where this world is eventually heading. This is true for everybody born in Adam, but it's especially true for those of us who are in Christ. If you follow Jesus as Lord, you are a true child of Abraham, and that means you have a long history that shapes your self-understanding. Your history doesn't begin with Matthew. It begins with Genesis. It runs through God's dealings with Israel and then climaxes in the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and what He has done on our behalf. To be united to Jesus is to be united to the history of God's people throughout the ages. And it's also why Paul can also say these things in the Old Testament were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Or his words in 2 Timothy chapter 3 echo the same point about the Old Testament. Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So here we are in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, as Christians, asking for God to give us eyes to behold wonderful things in His Word. Now, before I read today's passage, perhaps it would also be good to give Zechariah's prophecy a bit of context. Zechariah is God's abiding revelation to us, but God revealed these things through human figures at particular points in history. We must understand God's, God's message to the community of faith then in order to understand God's message to the community of faith now. So back up with me to the year 520 B.C., when Zechariah makes his first proclamation. We're now in the second year of King Darius, which means the 70 years of exile had passed for Israel. Israel at one point had entered the promised land, but didn't follow the Lord's instructions. Instead, Israel at large gave in to the nation's idols and immorality. They broke covenant with the Lord. They refused to repent from their sins, and things got so bad, according to 2 Chronicles 36, that God sent them into 70 years of exile in Babylon. Now the exile was over, and God was bringing a new and much smaller and chastened generation of Israelites home. But home looked pretty dismal. Jerusalem was still in ruins, 
and foreign enemies were still threatening them. So as you can imagine, the people's zeal to re-engage God's purposes grew dull pretty quickly. The temple was yet rebuilt, and even though they had started, now they had to stop because of these disapproving warlords, Ezra 4 tells us. And so the people grow apathetic. Why bother doing the Lord's work if this is all we get? So God sends in two prophets. Which may be a side note for our own apathy. The answer to our own apathy is God's Word. God's answer to apathy is His prophetic Word that reveals Himself and His promises and His purposes. If there's one thing the devil doesn't want apathetic Christians to do, it's reading the Word of God. It's hearing God's message. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. God's answer answer to apathy is His Word. So Haggai comes in, and he preaches God's Word to the people. He renews the people's zeal a little bit, and then Zechariah follows Haggai a couple months later, doing the same thing. Zechariah's message in particular works out like this. He prophesies, verses 4 to 5 will tell us, after the former prophets had preached and then died. So think especially of guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These former prophets, they promised judgment for the people through exile. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, the Davidic king would be removed, and the people would be alienated from God, scattered all over the place. This was part of their message. But these former prophets also promised the dawning of a new era following the judgment in exile, a day of repentance, a day of restoration and rebuilding a day of cleansing and fellowship with God, a day when a new David would reign on God's throne. So then Zechariah, he comes in after these former prophets, and he does this. He comes to these apathetic Israelites, and he confirms the fulfillment of the former prophets' words. That is, the judgment in exile happened just like God said it would. He points them back to God's judgments in history and says, learn something from the exile. God was faithful to judge you, as he said. But that's not all he does. Zechariah then extends the hope of a future salvation, now dawning in the anticipation of God's new day for Israel and all the nations where God would come and dwell in their midst in a new and greater Jerusalem. If God was faithful to His Word to judge, He'll also be faithful to His Word to save them. Now, in the weeks ahead, we'll get to savor many of these remarkable future promises. But today, we begin with a focus on repentance. Because without repentance we will not inherit the promises of God. So this is where Zechariah himself begins. Before he gets to the promises, he begins with repentance. That's not exactly how we normally think of encouraging one another, is it? God's angry with our sin. Repent. This is Zechariah's opening lines. Repentance is a hard message. But we ought not to suppose that we know better than God how to encourage His people. He knows what is best for us. He sees the drudgery of our sin for what it is. 
He knows that its outcome is death. He sees it sucking the life out of us and wreaking havoc in our relationships. And he's angry about it. His holiness and his love require him to be angry about sin. For God to love his children is for God to hate everything that will harm his children. So the best thing for, the, for his people is to sever their ties with sin to gain the Lord of hosts in all his glory and grace. So Zechariah begins with the necessity of repentance. A new generation in Israel has come. The exile is over. God is ready to do a new work in the unfolding of his kingdom. And so repentance couldn't be more urgent. Let's read it together in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers... Where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Father, I ask that your word would be sweet to us now, even though it's hard to hear at times, even though it cuts deeply, may it be sweet to us. May we see that in it you have good intentions for us, salvation and fellowship with you. Humble us before your word, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So what I'd like to do is walk through these six verses so that we get a better feel of what's going on. And we'll do this in three steps, the command, the incentive, and the response. And then I'd like to close with a few things we learn about repentance from this passage in particular, and and that will be more of the practical outworking of this message of repentance for us from day to day. So to begin, let's take our first step and look at the Lord's command. This is quite obvious In verse 3, very simple, he says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. Returning to the Lord is the most common way to talk about repentance in the Old Testament. It describes a turning to God and simultaneously a turning away from all that God hates. In some places, it refers to turning away from certain behaviors that are evil, but at the core is the idea of an internal 180, so to speak, an internal about-face toward God and away from those things causing estrangement from God. Now, it's also significant to note that this command comes to a people who had just returned from exile. They already returned from that land of Babylon. They already returned to their homeland. They already returned to rebuilding the temple. And now they're still hearing God say, return to me, return to me. What's the point? The point is that it highlights the real problem behind the exile. The real problem behind the exile is not geography. The real problem behind the exile is not architecture. It's sin that brings God's judgment. In other words, Zechariah is speaking to folks who are already returned in one sense 
And he's still saying return in another sense, meaning the real exile has to do with people's estrangement from God because of their sin. Who cares if you have the gift of land but no fellowship with God? Who cares if your enemies are now hundreds of miles away but you stand as an enemy of God? What use is a temple building if your sin still separates you from enjoying the glory of God's presence? This command to return is a command to relationship. It's a command away from sin to have a relationship with God, to enjoy God. And that leads me to our second step. Let's look now at the incentive to repent. The chief incentive follows in the latter half of verse 3. He says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and as a result, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So the chief incentive to repent is a relationship with the Lord of hosts. And more accurately, if you look at this this, uh, return of Yahweh... Language, especially in Isaiah and Zechariah, it has to do with the Lord returning to dwell in the midst of His people on Zion. Zion is a picture of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. God's people in God's place under God's rule, as Graham's Goldsworthy would put it. And this is rather remarkable when you consider who's doing the talking here, he goes by the name, the Lord of hosts, twice in verse 3. And in verse 2, he says that he was very angry with their fathers. It's never a good thing in Scripture when the Lord of hosts is angry with you. Actually, It's a rather haunting thing. The Lord of hosts is the title God uses to describe himself as a mighty warrior and the commander-in-chief over all armies. He's the commander-in-chief over angelic armies. He's the commander-in-chief over Israel's armies. But he's also the commander-in-chief over the armies. He sins against Israel to discipline them such as what just happened in the exile. And in every case that God reveals Himself as the Lord of hosts, whether in judgment or salvation, He is always righteous and He never loses. I mean, the weight of His power goes right through you when you read of it in Scripture. Psalm 46, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. The Lord of hosts utters His voice, the earth melts before Him. This kind of language. Isaiah 13 speaks of Him coming with great wrath and shaking the heavens so that celestial lights are falling from the sky. When the Lord of hosts is for you, it's an awesome thing. When He's against you, it's an awful thing. So what you get in the former prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, are these terrible promises where the Lord of hosts is gathering armies against Israel. This is right before they're going into the exile and entering the exile. They're promising that the Lord of hosts is amassing armies against Israel to punish them for their wickedness. He is angry with them, as verse 2 says here. And sure enough, those promises of judgment come to pass. Jerusalem gets taken, and the Lord banishes His people to exile for 70 years. So when they hear Zechariah saying, Lord of hosts, what kind of fear do you think it strikes to the core of their being? They saw what the Lord of hosts did to their fathers. 
He gathered the armies against their fathers and brought them to ruin. But in addition to this fear, what do you think it means to this new generation for this same Lord of hosts to be offering them the hope of a relationship with himself? It is, it is remarkable mercy here. This same Lord of hosts who shakes the cosmos with his anger comes to a new generation and says, Return to me, and I, Lord of hosts, will return to you. It's like getting cornered by a lion who can devour you in seconds, and the lion says instead, Get on my back and ride if you turn to me. All my strength will work for you and not against you if you turn to me. This is mercy unending with the Lord of hosts coming, saying, I will return to you. The Lord's wrath was spent on their fathers, but now in mercy he offers this people the grace of a new beginning with him on their side. All the might that he has as the Lord of hosts, all the jealousy that he has for his own people, all the salvation he could offer them, all the deliverance from their enemies they could want, even the very presence of his glory would all be theirs if they simply return to him. And he will be the same for you if you turn to him. He doesn't ask them to return because of anything they've done. He doesn't offer them himself based on any merit of their own. They didn't get themselves out of Babylon. He did. His command for them to return and his promise to return to them is all grace. In fact, there are several places in Isaiah and some more coming up in Zechariah where the Lord promises to fight for those who repent. And the reason he fights for them is to keep them in his presence. Return to the Lord and you get the Lord of hosts. That's the first incentive and the chief incentive. But there's another incentive in our text to repent as well, namely to escape the Lord's covenant curse. You can read with me in verse 4. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? This is covenant language. We should remember that God made a covenant with Israel on, on Mount Sinai. And sometimes we refer to this as the Mosaic covenant. And, and God warned them in that covenant of what would happen if they ignored His commands and didn't treat God as holy among the nations. In fact, there are two places in the law that seem to expect that this is exactly what would happen to Israel at some point in their future and makes provisions for it in terms of the covenant blessings and curses. You can find this in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. If Israel obeyed the, vo obeyed the covenant once they entered the land then all kinds of blessings would overtake them. But if they refused to obey, then all kinds of curses would overtake them. This word, overtake, in the ESV, it's the same word that's it's used back in Deuteronomy 28. In fact, the only place I could find where God's words and statutes actually overtake somebody is in Deuteronomy 
28 with the covenant curses. So Zechariah, we know that, that he is building, he's building his message on the message of Moses. This word, overtake, it's a hunting term. The idea is that God's covenant word would track you down and either bless you or destroy you. It would track you down and destroy you if you disobeyed. Your sins leave a trail behind you and the Lord's word will not fail to to sniff you out and bring you down for the kill. This is what happened to their fathers. God's covenant curse overtook them just like God promised it would in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and 45. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And the list of curses is horrific. I won't read them all this morning. But you don't want the curses of Deuteronomy 28 to fall on you. The worst of them is perishing, being cut off from God's presence, and having God, get this, delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. It's terrifying. It foreshadows what the lake of fire will be about. And yet everybody who breaks God's law deserves the covenant curse. The curse of exile ended their fathers. So the Lord tells this new generation, don't think that just because your fathers are dead and the prophets are dead that my word, my covenant word doesn't abide. That's what he's doing between verses 5 and 6 where he's, he's making this comparison between those who've died off and yet his word that remains. The fathers and the prophets died off But my words and my statutes, did they not overtake your fathers? The point is that God's covenant word still remains for this new generation. And if they live just like their fathers, then God's covenant word would sniff them out and destroy them too. The message is urgent. In other words, you don't live forever. My word does. So don't wait to repent. That brings us thirdly to the response at the end of verse 6. The response of repentance, we see it. It says, So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so He has dealt with us. Some translations depending on where they put the quotation marks, they take this to mean that the fathers mentioned back in verse 4 are the ones repenting here in response to the Lord's word. But because of of other places, like especially chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah and what happens in Haggai chapter 1, I'm more inclined to to take this repentance as belonging to the remnant within the new generation that Zechariah is preaching to. It's the people he told in verse 3 to return that are now, in response to what he said, returning or repenting to God. Their confession of how the Lord dealt with us then becomes a corporate confession of their intergenerational sin. As is the case with much confession of sin in the Old Testament, there's solidarity between the present community and and the previous generations. Get this in, especially like in Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 9, Ezekiel 18. And this goes hand in hand with with how God had revealed Himself to them, like in Exodus uh, 34. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and 
transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, get this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, think fathers in our text, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So within the covenant people, each generation has the opportunity to sever ties with long-standing patterns of sin. In this case, the remnant acknowledges their guilt and then races into the arms of a God who is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and who enjoys forgiving iniquity, and He's passionate to restore them to Himself. This is what's going on with this new generation Zechariah is speaking to. And in many ways, this paves the way for all kinds of promises the Lord makes to the remnant throughout the rest of Zechariah, which will start next week. So that's an overview of how this passage fits together. But as I mentioned before, there's much we can learn about repentance from this passage. Because let's face it, repentance is not something that went out with the Old Covenant. Repentance is very much part of God's New Covenant message as well. Repentance is part and parcel to sound gospel preaching. In fact, the message of repentance becomes all the more urgent with the coming of Jesus Christ because it means that God's final kingdom is even closer than it was in Zechariah's day. And so you have this super obvious connection with the ministry of John the Baptist in the Gospels. John comes in preaching in the same vein as the other prophets were, like Zechariah, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John links the message of the Old Testament prophets with the gospel message of the New Testament apostles. And Jesus then follows John the Baptist preaching the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in both cases, whether John or Jesus, it's clear what they mean. It's all the more urgent that people turn from their sins to God because the kingdom is present in the King Himself, Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of hosts who took on flesh to bring His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The only difference is that it becomes more clear that instead of the Lord of hosts coming to earth just once in final judgment, Jesus comes twice. First in humility, later in great wrath against His enemies. Why does He come twice instead of just once? He came the first time to deal with our sins and in particular to remove the covenant curse that tracked us all down and held us over the pit of hell. Jesus Christ came the first time as the true Israelite who obeyed God in every point of the law. He was tempted in every way just as we are, but He had no sin, Hebrews 4 tells us. That means two things. He and He alone deserves all of God's covenant blessings. He deserves them all for His perfect life. It also means that He and He alone qualifies to be our perfect human substitute. So what does He do? He races in love to the cross where God dumped all the covenant curses on Jesus in our place, including His eternal wrath, and Jesus was exiled. Jesus was banished from God's presence so that we wouldn't have to be ever if we place our faith in Jesus. Jesus. 
And then God raised him from the dead to prove his sacrifice was sufficient to deliver us from God's curse and reconcile us to God. And because of what he did for us, we get all the covenant blessings by simply trusting in him. All we deserved was covenant curses, but by being united to Jesus, all we get is covenant blessings. If you're on his team, curses will no longer track you down. All the heavenly blessings, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places will track you down and overtake you. And now Jesus sits enthroned in heaven waiting for the day of his great wrath and judgment, patiently waiting. But until that day comes, guess what message he said would be proclaimed to all the earth? Luke 24, verses 46 to 47. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that's exactly what the apostles did. And that's exactly what the church is doing today. Carrying on the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, which Paul says sounds like this, that we're appointed as witnesses to open people's eyes. Why? So that they might turn. That they might turn away from the power of Satan to God and from darkness to light. In the same way, the Lord pointed Israel back to his wrath on the fathers and said, return to me. So the Lord, through the gospel message, is pointing us back to the wrath he poured out on Jesus in our place and saying, return to me. The major difference is that 70 years in exile didn't even come close to what the people truly deserve for their sins. They deserved an eternity of wrath and we deserved the same and all of it was absorbed by Jesus for those who respond to God's message of repentance. Without repentance, we will not inherit the promises of God. We will not inherit the kingdom. We will only experience wrath outside the city, cursed every day of our lives. And I don't know how many days each one of you has, but the message is still the same. Don't wait to return to God. Return while God still gives you breath. So this message of repentance is crucial for us to hear. And so I want to point out very briefly what we learn about repentance from this passage. First observation is this. Repentance is centered on a relationship with the Lord. Repentance is centered on a relationship with the Lord. We need help here. Repentance is not merely feeling guilty about your sin. Repentance is not merely saying you're sorry for what you did. Repentance is not even merely saying no to evil desires and deeds. Repentance is not just getting rid of the sins that bug and frustrate you the most. Most important to repentance is that there is a return to a relationship with the Lord of hosts. God says, return to me. Return to me. Is holy behavior part of walking out repentance? Absolutely. The text is clear that repentance involves turning away from evil deeds and evil ways. External things and internal things. Deeds and ways. And later, Zechariah will even tell them, judge rightly, show kindness, show mercy, don't oppress the widow and the fatherless and the poor. So a change in behavior is, yes, is part of repentance. Repentance will even lead to verbal confessions of sort, like we see in verse 6. As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us in our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Acknowledgement of guilt. Verbal confession. Yes. 
But underneath that confession and underneath that behavior, there must be a person, Jesus Christ, and a relationship with him. God doesn't just call us to another way of life, another ethic, but a person to love. The Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ. Repentance is incomplete if there's no turning to the Lord. Any kind of behavioral change that's divorced from a relationship with Christ is mere moralism and is just as damning. A mere turning away from sin and evil without turning to the Lord is just as idolatrous since something else remains the object of our affection instead of the Lord Himself. Repentance is relational. Lodge that into your mind. It's internal affection for the one who is calling you home. So let that shape how you think of repentance every day. When you you think of your fight against whatever sins you're struggling with right now, think of it in terms of relationship. And see that turning from sin is not just an end in itself. It's about gaining God as your treasure. You are forsaking all affections and all actions that threaten your relationship with God. That's the point of repentance. You are turning away from idols to have more of God's glory. You are severing your ties with immorality to experience true intimacy with Christ. You are hating greed to gain the riches of Christ's kingdom. Having Christ is the goal. Another thing we learn about repentance, repentance is motivated by God's word. Repentance is motivated by God's Word. It's the Spirit's word, words through the prophet Zechariah that brings the people to repentance, to respond this, this way. And the same is true today. God brings repentance through His Word. The Word exposes our sin. The Word convicts us when we're in error. The Word humbles us before the Lord of hosts in all His glory. The Word warns us of the coming judgment. The Word heralds the love of God in Christ. The Word births new faith in the apathetic soul. And so we must give attention to the Word. We have to give attention to it ourselves, and then we have to preach it to others. If if we expect repentance and we're praying for repentance but not preaching the Word to others... We're severing us from the very, we're severing us, ourselves, and them from the very thing that's supposed to generate that repentance, the Word of God. We cannot look at people trapped in sin and darkness and not speak the very word that generates a turn from it to the Lord. And the same is true for ourselves. If all we're listening to is our own words or the culture's words, then we will not be, we will not be stirred to return to the Lord. And that's a dangerous place to be. The Lord's Word comes with fresh grace to each one of us this morning. If you haven't been in the Word lately, see that God comes to you with gracious arms, wide open, promising, return to me. I will return to you. I will give you myself. Listen to His words, and He will bring refreshment to your soul. A third thing we learn about repentance. Repentance is necessary to experience God's favor and grace. I mean, God's favor and presence. Repentance is necessary to experience God's favor and presence. God's promise to return to His people has a condition. The people must repent. And the same is true in the message of the gospel. This is why Jesus and the apostles repeatedly call people to faith and repentance. Faith and repentance, like two sides of the same coin. This is the condition for salvation. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And we see in other places that that repentance is not just something that 
is entry into the door of the faith. Repentance is something that is lifelong. Lifelong turning away. You don't meet the condition of faith and repentance. You perish away from the favorable presence of God. Now, it's also true elsewhere in the New Testament that God is the one who grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 is a good example. God sets the conditions of salvation, and then He ensures that His elect meet all the conditions. Repentance itself is an act of grace. But that doesn't negate the responsibility we have still to repent. If we have trusted in Christ, we are now reconciled to God, we have peace with God, we stand righteous before God, but it's equally true that our relationship with God will work itself out in turning away from the things God hates. That's one of the reasons Christ died, to break sin's hold on us so that we can turn away from it and become obedient from the heart, like Romans 6 says. Or have the Holy Spirit in us, and it says, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body and the flesh, Romans 8. This is why Jesus came. We cannot profess to be Christian while refusing to practice repentance. We cannot say we are slaves of Jesus Christ while remaining indifferent to our sinful addictions. We also cannot pretend that we need no repentance. It says Jesus told those who thought themselves to be righteous, the Pharisees in Luke 15, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven doesn't rejoice over the self-righteous who think they don't need repentance. Heaven rejoices when we admit that we need repentance. Repentance is necessary for all of us. We cannot keep loving the things God hates. Some of us are going for long periods of time without any intimacy with God raising our fists at God for not blessing us with rich times in the Word, sometimes frustrated, sometimes driven to despair. While we're settling for lesser pleasures of the world. And that is suicidal. Richard Phillips puts it this way. Your sin will not bring blessing, but ruin. However sweet its deceptive song in your ears, if you persist in sin, you will at the least bring upon yourself God's chastisement. And at the worst, you will prove that you have not really believed at all ultimately to reap the destruction you are now sowing in the seeds of sin. So please listen to the Lord's plea this morning. It is a plea. Verse 4, when, he's, when the former prophets are crying out to Israel, it be translated there, please turn. Please. Listen to the Lord's plea this morning. It comes to you with grace. See that His arms are open wide to receive all who will turn. Put away your evil ways and your evil deeds. Come to the Lord of hosts. He will not turn you away when you humble yourself before Him. He will shine on you with His gracious favor and forgive your sins and restore your wayward soul. And He can do that because of the death of Jesus we talked about earlier. Which is the final observation I want to leave you with. Repentance comes with forgiveness and restoration. 
because of Jesus' death. Repentance comes with forgiveness and restoration because of Jesus' death. As we, as we work our way through Zechariah, uh, we'll see that these words of repentance come in connection with God returning to his temple. This is why he wants them to uh, make their hands strong for work in Haggai and Zechariah. Build the temple. It's going to return. His glory is going to come back and dwell with his people. God's grace would, would move the people to rebuild the temple. Why? Because the, the temple was where the sacrifices for sin took place. It's where God dwelled with his people in light of those sacrifices above the mercy seat. Someone had to die in the place of another for God to dwell so freely with his people. John's gospel, we've just finished that a while back. John's gospel tells us that Jesus fulfills everything the temple and the sacrifices looked forward to. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He tells the Pharisees, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the superior temple and the superior sacrifice. Because Jesus died in our place, God forgives our sins. When you come to God trusting in the blood of Jesus, He forgives your sins, as 1 John 1.9 says, and He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And because Jesus is risen as the new and better temple, God happily dwells with all who love Him. Your relationship is restored with God when you trust in Jesus. And instead of waiting in dread for the day of judgment, you wait with eager expectation to see the Lord of hosts face to face and forever enjoy His favor and protection in His new Jerusalem. As Acts 5 says, God has exalted Jesus to His right hand as leader and Savior. Why? to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is exalted at God's right hand, ready to give you repentance and forgiveness of sins. Because He is risen, you can return to the Lord of hosts so that He will return to you. So let's eat the Lord's Supper now together on that note.